Welcome to the Business of Learning, the Learning Leaders Podcast from Training Industry. Hello and welcome to the Business of Learning, the Learning Leaders Podcast from Training Industry. I'm Sarah Gallo, an associate editor here at Training Industry, with my co-host Taryn Aish, managing editor. Before we begin, I would first like to say that this episode of the Business of Learning is sponsored by the Certified Professional in Training Management Program. The Certified Professional in Training Management Credential, or CPTM, is designed to convey the essential competencies you need to manage a training organization. When you become a CPTM, you gain access to alumni resources like monthly peer roundtables and a full registration to the Training Industry Conference and Expo. If you start today, you can earn the CPTM credential in as little as two months. To learn more, visit cptm.trainingindustry.com. Hi. Inclusion has become a hot topic in business broadly and learning and development specifically. For an organization to be truly inclusive, supporting all employees and becoming a more supportive and more effective place to work, its leaders must have certain characteristics. To learn more about inclusive leadership, today we're speaking with Shauna Smetter, Director of U.S. Strategic Talent Programs at ABB, and H. West Pratt, Assistant to the President and Chief Diversity Officer at Missouri State University. Shauna and West, welcome to the Business of Learning. Thank you so much. Thank you. Good morning. All right, to kick things off, why don't you both share with us what inclusion means to you? Shaunas, do you want to start us off? Absolutely. Well, first, again, thank you so much for inviting us to participate in this. I'm excited to talk with you all today. So, yes, inclusion, I think, has become a very important uh, topic in the corporate world in particular. You used to hear just a lot about diversity, and now it's really becoming quite mainstay to hear diversity always mixed with the word inclusion. So even here at ABB, we call it diversity and inclusion. So specifically, inclusion to us is belongingness plus uniqueness. So what I mean by that is means each individual can be both similar and notice how they belong, as well as distinct and unique as an individual. So we look at it as differences that are accepted, appreciated, and respected. So that's kind of the the baseline that we look at here at ABB. Great. And Wes, do you have anything to add? Well, um, it sort of means to us, you know, the active, intentional, and um, ongoing engagement with diversity in ways that increase awareness. And we say cognitive sophistication, but we're talking about knowledge and empathic understanding of the ways that individuals react within systems, institutions, organizations, and even with our communities. And so from our perspective, it's this, the emphasis is on active and intentional engagement. And, uh, you know, it it operates across not only uh, an institution of higher learning like Missouri State University, but also to our other stakeholders, such as our community in which uh, Missouri State resides. So, but the emphasis is on being actional and intentional in that engagement with diversity. Thanks. Those are both great definitions. I I loved the focus on belongingness and uniqueness, Shaunas, and then that kind of active and intentional component is also so important. So knowing what, uh, how you both define inclusion, let's take it a step further. And what do we mean when a leader is inclusive? What is an inclusive leader? Wes, do you maybe want to start with this one? Okay, sure. 
It's sort of an involved process because a leader promotes the value of the inclusion of diversity. And so it's not just a numbers agenda, it's not just a checklist agenda, but it's actually one who uh, promotes the engagement of people across this broad spectrum and who recognizes that valuing the inclusion of diversity begins with awareness, knowledge, and skills development that's necessary to ensure access, success, and equity for all employees or all stakeholders, uh, whether it be a university campus or a business or an organization. And in, in higher education, I might add that, you know, we, we our, our premise, our, the principle in which we sort of espouse our belief is in inclusive excellence. And that has been a foundation that was established by Dr. Damon A. Williams, who developed this philosophy that involves not only chief diversity officers, but our senior leadership, deans, department chairs, faculty, students, and alumni, and other diversity champions actively working together to move beyond the cycle of, um, you know, and you look at the college campuses, you find uh, diversity crisis, action, relaxation, and then disappointment with too often what's replayed on these national campuses and colleges. And so we're not really getting to changing the institutional culture. So an inclusive leader has to be able to promote the value of the engagement of diversity. Thanks. And Shaunas, what are your thoughts? First, definitely, I want to echo some of the things that he said. And with here at ABB, we specifically have worked on a definition of what it means to be an inclusive leader with one of the leading diversity and inclusion nonprofit organizations globally, which is named Catalyst. So some of what you'll hear me talk about today is, is through our partnership with Catalyst. We look at an inclusive leader as someone who very much takes four key areas and then focuses on them in an actionable way. So the four key areas are how are they aware of what inclusion and unconscious bias is? How do they accept the fact that uh, how they think and the biases that they have are a part of who they are as a leader? But then how do they pay attention to those? And then how do they take action on them? So again, we look at awareness, acceptance, attention, and action. And I heard some of those words shared as well by doctor here. So for us in particular, you heard me talk about unconscious bias. That's a big fundamental element of how we focus on helping people understand inclusivity and being an inclusive leader. And in fact, a little statistic, a couple statistics on it is first, our brains bring in about 11 million bits of information every second, which is hard to imagine that there's that much information that's flowing at us. We can only process about 40 bits of that information. And so that's where unconscious bias comes in. Unconscious bias is a very human nature, sophisticated thing that we as humans can do but it's what we do with the information. We look for patterns and that's human nature as well. And sometimes those patterns are healthy patterns and sometimes they're not. So again, our focus is on helping an inclusive leader recognize it, accept that it exists, pay attention to those moments of when unconscious bias in particular can come into play and then how do they take positive action on it. I'll share one more statistic as well. We have found and research shows that when leaders are inclusive, 
their employee innovation levels are 42% higher than of teams that have a non-inclusive leader in charge. So pretty powerful stuff. Yeah. Can I go back to another point in that regard? Yeah, absolutely. Okay. I, I mentioned this concept of inclusive excellence, and that's where and, and I'm a disciple of, of Dr. Damon A. Williams, who had done, has done the research on inclusive excellence. But it's making diversity a matter of excellence that requires a leadership paradigm shift, so to speak. And so he identifies these five principles that I think are principles of strategic diversity leadership, since we're talking about being an inclusive leader. And I'd like to share those with you. Principle one is to redefine the issues of diversity, equity, and inclusion as fundamental to the organizational bottom line of mission fulfillment and institutional excellence. Principle two, focus on creating those systems that enable, for instance, all of our students, faculty, and staff to thrive and to achieve their uh, maximum potential. It would be the same thing in a business or a corporation or an organization to allow your employees to thrive and achieve their maximum potential. Principle three, achieve a more robust and integrated diversity approach that builds on prior diversity models and operates in a strategic evidence-based and data-driven manner so we can build that accountability in where that is paramount. And number four would be focus those diversity-related efforts to intentionally transform the institutional or the organizational culture. It's not just to make those tactical moves that I related to, to earlier that lead to poorly integrated efforts in symbolic implementation alone. And then the fifth principle was to lead with a high de degree of cultural intelligence and awareness of different identities and their significance, whether it be in higher education or the business and corporate sector. That cultural consciousness and competency is critically important to, to being able to establish those principles of leadership. Thanks, Wes. Those were some great tips. And Shaughness, I definitely resonated with your insights about unconscious bias and how recognizing that bias and bridging that is just so important for inclusive leadership. And going off of that, what would you say makes inclusive leaders successful? Shaughness, do you want to start with this one? Sure. So uh, again, I'll, I'll use an acronym or a way that, that we try to break it into simple terms. So I'll talk about some skills and traits or behaviors that we look for. And then I'll also talk about some business aspects. So first from a skills and traits perspective, we use the acronym EACH, E-A-C-H. And we're looking for success equals E is for empowerment, A is for accountability, C is for courage, and H is for humility. So again, I think from a behavioral standpoint, particularly in leaders, we're looking for those that empower their team, empower their employees, look for those opportunities where people may be seen as a quote-unquote other or not as part of the main group and empower those employees to have a voice, to be involved, to be selected for things. Also, the A, again, is accountability. So we look for people that, again, hold themselves accountable to having high standards in the area of diversity and inclusion, and then also hold their peers and staff members accountable for being consistent, fair, and authentic as well. Then the C, again, is for courage. Having the courage to have sometimes those difficult conversations, either difficult conversations with some people who don't quite get it and are not as in tune with how their behaviors are creating a, a not-inclusive environment, 
and also the courage to talk to those people that are different than them. In fact, sometimes I like to think of the C as not just courage, but also curiosity. I think the more people can show curiosity towards people versus judgment, the closer we'll continue to get to a diverse and inclusive environment. And the last trait or skill is the H, which is humility. I think there is something to be said, particularly for leaders, to recognize when they've made a mistake and be vocal about it and show people that we're all human and we're not always going to get it. We're not always going to be as open-minded and as inclusive and just being real about that and, and using that humility. So those are on the behavioral side. I'll quickly also share some things from a business perspective. What makes an inclusive leader successful is bringing inclusion into all aspects of running their business. So we focus on every component of what we call the, the talent life cycle. Everything from hiring practices to development opportunities to team selection to coaching to promotions and to recognition. So I could go into detail on those things later in the call, but there really are elements to it. And I think Wes already pointed out, metrics driven is important as well. So on all of those factors that I just covered, we're measuring the success, monitoring the success and recognizing rewarding or not rewarding when the leaders in particular are exhibiting those behaviors or not. So. There you go. That's great. And Wes, do you have anything to add? Yeah, and you know, I, I think that successful leaders must understand this this framework of inclusive excellence. For example, here at the university, we we recognize that to achieve inclusive excellence, we have to advise, we have to value, engage, and celebrate the rich diversity that our students, faculty, staff, alumni, and even university stakeholders in the community sort of bring to this campus and the community. And so we sort of approach it from a, a framework that emphasizes access, success, and equity, that emphasizes our campus and our community climate, learning development, the cultural consciousness piece of it, the institutional um, and commitment to valuing inclusive excellence. And then we also recognize that we have to prepare our students for a diverse and a global world. And, and so part of that has to be that framework or that part of our long-range plan, planning efforts has to include preparing those students for a diverse and global world, as well as domestic and international diversity research and scholarship. So all of that sort of plays in to the ability to create inclusive leadership. But it, it, it's sort of, again, going to that paradigm shift. A lot of times, organizations and institutions will look at, well, it's the chief diversity officer's responsibility. And I think that's, that's a, a non-starter because it basically takes the leadership of the entire organization to actually promote the value of inclusion and to create an environment where inclusive excellence is the norm and not an exception to the rule. And if I could piggyback on that, I think that's an excellent point, Wes. In fact, here at ABB, if you noticed, my title isn't actually even diversity and inclusion. It's certainly a component of the role that I play here at ABB, but we find it very important for this to really be owned and an accountability lying within the business and the leaders, not within, in this case, the HR organization or a right. massive, massive diversity and inclusion office. We certainly have people like myself that help consult and, uh, and bring some expertise to the table, but the organization, the business, 
is really who owns diversity and inclusion here. And it sounds similar at the university setting. Yeah, you're right. Great, thanks. That's a great overview of what makes a successful, inclusive leader and, and what skills they have. Thank you. So with that in mind, how can organizations help their leaders develop those skills and become more inclusive? I think you have to create opportunities for change that is necessary so to develop that infrastructure within the institution or the organization or even your community that values the inclusion of diversity. And I think you began by, you know, basically understanding and defining what do we mean when we're talking about diversity and inclusion? Or what are we talking about when we define cultural consciousness and competency and even inclusive excellence? So for us, it started with making those values that institutional, I mean, insta, um, inclusive excellence is a core value for the institution. But we also needed to define for our stakeholders, what do we mean by diversity and inclusion? What do we mean by cultural consciousness and competency? And so those are basically the foundation. And then you sort of make that the part of your mission, your vision, your long-range planning process. It was alluded to, you know, the accountability part of that. If you have a long-range planning process, those plans are going to be generally five years long or at a minimum, but you have to then have action plans which are breaking off in bite-sized pieces. So I'm looking at an action plan that promotes cultural consciousness, so I'm going to prioritize a couple items within my action plan uh, as a part of that long-range plan where it shows that we're working with our faculty and our staff and even our students to promote cultural consciousness and competency. So to make it a part of your mission, make it a part of your vision, and make it a part of some actionable steps where you can hold people accountable for the implementation of, uh, of the types of practices, programs, and efforts that promote valuing the inclusion of diversity. Great. Well, I'll add to that from a, a corporate perspective. Development is handled under a framework across ABB in a very similar way, but again, we're a pretty global company. We have about 130,000 employees in over 90 countries across the world. So definitely the definition of diversity and inclusion morphs a bit depending on culturally where you are in the world. So I'll speak from a U.S. perspective here. And I'm going to break it down into kind of three categories that you can think about when you're thinking about organizations developing a diverse and inclusive culture. The first, I think you can have a focus on education and training. The second, I think there can be a focus on engagement through things like employee resource groups. And then third, I think there can be a part of communication and recognition and celebration of things. So uh, let me talk briefly about each of those. Going back to the training element, I do think it can be important to make sure your leaders first understand and are aware of what inclusion and diversity means, what unconscious bias means, and having them be educated and, and adept in it first before it goes too far down into the organization. Otherwise, you're watching leaders who can't practice what they preach. So I'd say two key areas if a, if a company or a university is trying to get started, they could look at, again, specifically some unconscious bias training. I also highly recommend doing emotional intelligence training or even assessment tools out there. There's one called EQ 2.0. It can really help people and leaders in particular recognize where they are quite aware of their behaviors and actions and where maybe they have some areas they could improve upon to enhance their leadership style and particularly be a more inclusive leader. 
So those are two things on the training front. And certainly having metrics associated with these things is important as we already talked about. The second thing I talked about is engagement. I think organizations can develop an inclusive culture through having things like an employee resource groups, or I know in the university setting, which I also used to work in, student clubs and um, university and student partnership committees and summits were very important. So that's the same here at a, a corporation. We have a pretty extensive amount of employee resource groups. We call them Encompass to bring in that inclusivity aspect. And those have been incredibly powerful ways for employees across the globe, across our geographies, across businesses to truly be engaged and feel empowered to help make a difference in areas of diversity and inclusion. And then last but not least, I think organizations can also develop these things by recognizing and communicating about these topics, about these areas of diversity and inclusion. So just a couple examples that are happening here and now. We just all celebrated National Black History Month in February. This month in March, we International Women's Day is coming up here this Sunday on March 8th. In fact, we've turned it into an entire month of recognizing International Women's Day here at ABB. Soon to be coming up in June, there's LGBTQ plus Pride Month in September, Hispanic Heritage Month, October, Native American Day, and I could go on with the list. But having a recognition and a celebration of those differences as well as the belongingness, I think is an important way to help develop people and the culture that you're trying to create as well. Those are some great ideas. Thanks. Now, we know, you know, as this conversation around diversity inclusion becomes more and more common, many organizations are working to become more inclusive or, or at least starting to talk about it. But, you know, in many cases, they're not seeing the needle move or at least not seeing it move enough. So what are some common challenges that you think organizations are facing that are, uh, that are keeping them from becoming more inclusive and, and, you know, having more inclusive leadership teams? Wes, do you want to start? You know, we live in a very polarized, divisive national climate, unfortunately. And unfortunately, sometimes our leaders on the political, in the political arenas will use efforts to divide and to polarize as opposed to inform and make people more aware. And so I, I think there is sometimes resistance to efforts to promote the value of inclusion. There's ignorance or a lack of knowledge. I believe Ms. Eagleston is that... Uh, Ms. Metterweather, she talked earlier about bias and implicit bias, particularly are some common challenges that any institution, any organization face, even communities. I mean, I live in, in Springfield, Missouri, which is right smack dab in the middle of the United States. And, and so the demographic changes that are occurring nationally, the international globalization and, and the global economy sometimes can be threatening and, and intimidating to, to many people who lack the cultural consciousness and competency to sort of understand to value the inclusion of diversity is not to diminish any of us in any regards. As a matter of fact, when, when I think about the term diversity, I'm talking about the individual and group social differences that a business or an organization brings to making a profit, that an institution of higher learning brings to the business of higher post-secondary education. And so it, it's all of those individual and group social differences. So a lot of times it's that lack of awareness, it's that lack of knowledge, and then the lack of skills development to be able to effectively negotiate cross-cultural differences that includes all of us because we're all diverse. And so I sometimes think about, you know, I read a book one time um, 
diversity in America, and it talked about when the when the 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 founding fathers and mothers came to these shores from Europe, they were all diverse, and then they found a Native American population that was indigenous to um, North America, and and they were all diverse. But sometimes we don't understand that diversity is not a new concept that diversity includes the individual and group social differences that we bring to living. And so we're all diverse. And so I think once we have the ability at some point in time to get on the same page and understand all of us have the same interest in, in, in living and, and, and having a career and being, having shelter and food and whatever the things that we all have in common that are, that are much more relevant than the fact that we may be different based on our geographical, racial, ethnic, national makeup, sexual orientation, or gender identity, then the better off we'll be. But that is a slow and evolving process. I sometimes like to think when you're talking about promoting the value of inclusion, you're talking about an evolution, not a revolution in that regard, because on so many levels, we lack the cultural consciousness and competency that is necessary, I, I think, to move us forward. And, and that becomes the challenge. Challenge, uh, many of the challenges we face within organizations and certainly in, in, in the various communities in which we live, learn, and earn. Wes, I love what you just said about evolution versus revolution. I, I, I might steal that one. <laughs> so thank you. <laughs> no problem. Um, <laughs> well, I'll add to it and I'll focus on two components in particular. I think there's a challenge having to do with innovation, which I mentioned that statistic earlier that, again, when you have inclusivity in the workplace, your employees tend to bring 42% more innovation to the table. And then I'll secondly focus on this idea of what we call psychological safety. So I'll start with an example on the innovation front. Probably a number of you have heard of the concept or studied the concept of groupthink. And again, groupthink is usually when you have a group of people together that are very similar to you. And you can think that's a great thing because you get along, you agree with each other, it's feeling wonderful, but it tends to be very much a hindrance to innovation because you're not bringing in other perspectives. You're not thinking about things in a different way. There's no one there challenging the camaraderie that's going on and, and bringing in something different. So one example for us that, that we work through is working with some of our sites who have been used to hiring in one particular way, and it has been incredibly successful for them in their minds over time. And having them get comfortable to the idea of actually, if you do hire from, for instance, multiple universities versus just one university, just as one example, you can actually bring a huge amount of innovation and diversity of thought to what you're trying to do at that site or at that plant. Because instead of having just one way of approaching an engineering issue, because all of the students went to the same school and had the same professors and, and learned the same things, you can broaden that by bringing in multiple different schools and multiple different um, types of studying that those students went to, and that will help with innovation. So I think that's one challenge that we face is helping make sure people see that just what made you successful back in the day, could you actually be even more successful if you look at bringing in um, diversity through innovation of thought? So that's one example. The second example I'll give again, as I said, is psychological safety. And I'll give an example on a team that in our company 
we tend to have a lot of people that tend to be males in one part of our company. And it's been highly successful over time. And it's just kind of been the nature of how that part of the business has worked. With our focus on trying to make sure we're representing what's happening around the, the world more and bringing in more gender balance and gender equity, I've posed the question of how would it feel if you are on an interview, if you're coming in for an interview, let's say as a female, and you're sitting at the interview table and everyone around the table who has been successful in this up until now and who's judging whether or not you will be successful in the role looks dramatically different from you. And again, we use that term psychologically safe. Do you feel like you're going to be able to be yourself, that you're going to be authentic, that you're going to be accepted, that you're going to be able to bring your best self to the table? And we want to create an environment that helps people feel like that, not only in the hiring process, but also while they're here at work. So again, those are two challenges and examples that we face. And it's I don't think it's because people inevitably don't have great intentions. It's again education, awareness, and acceptance of this fact that those unconscious biases exist, those practices that we have had exist, but we need to evolve, as Wes said earlier. So um, there's a couple examples. That's great. I definitely agree with your take on psychological safety. It's definitely so important, especially in today's work environment. I guess next off, what advice do you have for L&D leaders on how they themselves can become more inclusive? Wes, do you want to start us off? I think leaders must model the, you know, the mission or the vision. Here, for example, I talked about our core value being inclusive excellence. So, and I think Shanice uh, spoke of it earlier. You, know, you, you not only have to talk the talk, but you have to walk the walk. And, and so it's critically important that our administrators at the top buy into inclusive excellence. As a matter of fact, when I took this opportunity to be the chief diversity officer four years ago, I had been researching and dealing with inclusive excellence since 2008, but we didn't really adopt it as a core value until 2011. And and, and, and in talking with the President Smart here, it's like, well, you know, uh, inclusive excellence has to be the framework, has to be the model that we incorporate here because, again, evidence-based, the research demonstrates that it's effective that when you bring different people to the table, you create access, success, and equity. You you change the environment, make it a more welcoming environment. You create learning, development through cultural consciousness, and, and then even to address the issues of preparing our students for a global society and a global economy, that the inclusive excellence framework then becomes incorporated into the vision. I talked earlier about those action plans for implementation and, and then to tweak them and modify them when necessary. The accountability, again, as my friend from Airbnb spoke of um, earlier, you have to identify those policies and practices and programs that sort of militate against valuing the inclusion of diversity, that become those barriers to access, success, and equity, and and, and recognize that you have to create an environment in which everybody can achieve and everyone can accomplish. And I think that emphasis on success for your entire workforce or your entire student body or your entire 
faculty and, and administrative team is critically important to becoming a more inclusive team or department. Again, it's, it's not just the chief diversity officer's responsibility or the chief equity and diversity officer, however, he, uh, whatever the nomenclature may provide for that model, but it's everybody's business. Valuing the inclusion of diversity is everyone's business, and it's been demonstrated that your decision-making process is enhanced, your cognitive effectiveness is enhanced. In other words, you become smarter, you become more knowledgeable, and, and certainly to develop those skills that are necessary to negotiate cross-cultural differences. Some people might call them soft skills. Some people may call them hard skills. Regardless of what they are, you have to be able to negotiate cross-cultural differences on a lot of different levels in order to be an effective leader, but also have an effective workforce or um, effective uh, institutions and organizations. Yeah, that's great. And I'll build upon, I think you did a, a, a great job of covering not only some individual, but also some organizational aspects of uh, how to overcome challenges and how a learning and development manager can become more inclusive. I want to focus a little bit more on some individual things that, that a person, that learning and development manager can do. One thing I would say is provide air cover. And what I mean by that is make sure that the people that you are managing, the people that you are partnering with in the organization, the people that you might even be training, make sure that each individual is feeling that, that you have their back. You're providing protection, support, a listening ear. When you are seeing things or hearing things that maybe are not promoting an inclusive environment. The second thing I would say is, as I said earlier, share struggles. I think you earn a lot of credibility and people see your commitment when you yourself are transparent. You're showing vulnerability, you're showing authenticity, you're sharing that not everyone is perfect and this is a learning of everyone understanding the cultural differences, understanding what inclusion means, etc. So I think you being open, transparent, and authentic is going to help. And last but not least, something we've talked about throughout this podcast is taking action. And I think it's important as an individual, take action when you see something, hear something, notice something that is not in line with what your company or your university or your community expects. And also make sure you take action and recognize when you see something amazing occur, the little and the big, around behaviors, inclusive behaviors, recognition of those great things, small and big, that individuals are doing daily um, to help build that culture even further. That's great, Shonis. And I guess next off, what about tips for training professionals who work in organizations where leaders aren't inclusive? How can they go about navigating that type of environment? Wes, do you want to start us off? Well, I, I recall my wife's dad telling, you know, he would tell them as they were kids, proper Prior proper planning prevents poor performance. He called it the six P's. And then I've heard, uh, I guess some folks would classify as a senior citizen. So I've been around since the civil rights movement. And so uh, I remember one 
I believe it was H. Rap Brown said, it's not the rap, it's the map, it's not the man, it's the plan. or the, It's not the man or the woman, it's the plan. And, and I think we have to really, when we're talking about training professionals who are working in organizations, they have to, number one, do the work. They have to become knowledgeable. They have to become aware. They have to become knowledgeable and develop the skills that are necessary to help move not only individuals, but sometimes organizations. you you got to be able to take people where they are and, and not get frustrated. When I was a younger man, I, I you know, I was, I, I remember being an activist, being a community activist, engaging in demonstrations and things of that nature, and sort of being frustrated by the process or by the progress or what I perceive to be the lack thereof. Uh, as I mentioned earlier, this is, is, is an evolution. I mean, things are better than they were maybe when I was a, uh, a young college student, but it's all relative. And, and so the challenges sometimes become much more complicated. As Shanice pointed out earlier, you know, I, I, I can, this, this environment, this climate in which we live in, you know, the technological advancement, the need for uh, 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 the diversity that exists globally, the need sometimes to make sure that our workforce is prepared to to move into the opportunities and the positions that are available, you know, it can can create some daunting challenges. So your approach to developing the knowledge and, and uh, the awareness and those skills that are necessary to move yourself to a level where you're comfortable, you're confident with a research-based approach, a research-based approach to the value and the inclusion of diversity. And, and understanding, you know, I mean, folks are going to be in different places at different times. And so you got to be able to take people where they are and move them to where they need to be or where it's going to be a value added to your institution, your organization, or your business, or your corporation. And those are, can be sometimes daunting and challenging, but that's the real world in which you live in. I mean, when you think about change or think about movements, nothing has occurred within a month or a year. I mean, it, it generally takes time. And, and to build the cultural consciousness and competency that is needed to negotiate us through these cross-cultural changes and, and what's going on technologically, demographically, worldwide, will be one of our most daunting changes. But, you know, I happen to believe in the faith of not only folks of, of vision and, and mission, but in, in young people. I think Marion Wright Edelman said it best when it comes to young people in higher education. That the bottom line is, or in education, the bottom line is, if you care enough, young people can change the world. I sort of live by that. And so I take every opportunity to share my perspective, but a perspective that is based on, I think, with experience, based on what the real world is, and based on the resources and the research that is available to us. A data-driven approach to, to change can basically change um, a lot of institutional and organizational cultures. And so that's the way I sort of look at that. So in training professionals, they have to be prepared to, I, I think, approach the change that's necessary from that perspective. Well, Wes, first let me say, wow, you have had a powerful career, <laughs> and I'm so impressed that you have carried this passion for diversity and inclusion through really your entire career all the way back to the civil rights movement. So thank you for all the things that you have done for us here. From a training perspective, I look at why would a company or a university invest in having trainers? And to me, it boils down in a simple way into two main reasons. The first is training professionals bring subject matter expertise to the table. And so one thing trainers should definitely do, as Wes has already said, is make sure you're very informed, educated, and stay on top of how to be 
a great diversity and inclusion trainer slash believer slash advocate. The second factor of why I think a company or university would invest in having trainers is because we are neutral parties. If you think about why we exist, we're not running a profit and loss center. We're not making a product. What we are doing is we are the neutral group who has no other purpose other than seeing people learn, grow, and be successful in order for that company or that university to be successful in what they're trying to do. There's no other bias. There's no other hidden agenda on what we're trying to do. So as long as a professional development person or a trainer can build credibility by being that subject matter expert and by being seen and acting as that neutral party who has no other intent other than to help people learn, grow, and be the best that they can be in what they do, I think they're set up for success. And so on that note, on a personal level, as a trainer, I think there's an important thing that comes into learning and development in particular, which is there's the what and the how. So when a leader, as an example, who is not showing inclusive behavior, the what might be on point, meaning they might be making the monthly numbers. They might have made sure that the product got shipped on time, but the how they did it and how they treated people or how they overlooked some opportunities to involve people that otherwise weren't involved, the what and the how are both important. So as a trainer, I think the first thing is to give people a chance who maybe are not as inclusive as they can be. Give them a chance to learn. Give them a, a chance to be introspective. But then after you've given them some time and monitored it, provide some one-on-one -on -one coaching, some private one-on-one -on -one coaching to help them see those areas that they might be blind to and help them grow, learn, and be more introspective. Lastly, though, if that one-on-one -on -one coaching and those moments that you're taking privately with them are not helping move the needle on their inclusivity as a leader, I think it's up to you as a training professional to make sure you're talking to the management that have, has hired you and make sure that that management is taking action on behaviors that are not changing. So again, that person could be amazing at the what, but if they're not also trying to learn and grow and become better on the how, they're ultimately not going to be a good leader at your company, period. I would concur with that. This wraps up this episode of The Business of Learning. Shaughness and Wes, thanks so much for sharing your thoughts on, on this important topic. Thank you for having Thank me. Thank you. For more insights on inclusive leadership, check out the show notes for this episode at trainingindustry.com slash trainingindustrypodcast. Yeah, we'll have articles on inclusive leadership and psychological safety, and we even have an article that Wes contributed to uh, last year on becoming a chief diversity officer, um, and we'll also have a great animation on inclusive leadership there as well. And if you're enjoying this podcast, we encourage you to rate and review us to help other learning leaders find the podcast. Thanks for listening. Until next time. If you have feedback about this episode or would like to suggest a topic for a future program, email us at info at or use the Contact Us page at trainingindustry.com. Thanks for listening to the Training Industry Podcast.